Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash noripodcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash noripodcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Today, I have with me Dr. Nick Cowan of the University of Lincoln. He wrote a paper along with a co-author, Dr. Charles Delmutt, called Cost and Choice in the Commons, Ostrom in the Case of British Flood Management. Thanks for being here, Nick. Oh, it's great to be here, Ross. Great to be here, actually. Um, you know, I think in some ways, the kind of this pandemic situation kind of brought us to have this conversation because, you know, I find myself in front of a screen uh, talking to students, talking to potential graduate students. And I kind of realize, wow, I've kind of got this. I'm all, I'm all set up finally. Finally, I can talk to Ross and appear on, appear on the podcast. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Your lobbying efforts of me were successful because I have long wanted to do an episode about the Bloomington School, about new institutional uh, economics, about Eleanor Ostrom, common pool resources. It is time. You have the discreet pleasure of being the one to introduce this. So your lobbying could not have come at a better time, Nick. Fantastic. (laughs) Indeed, and I'm not sure um, who out there listening knows much about Eleanor Ostrom. She's a Nobel laureate in economics. Her husband political scientists. They're both deceased. They actually died very near to each other. It was, wasn't it like a month or two apart? It was very close, wasn't it? Yes, yes. It was a tragedy for, um, well, you know, for the world of liberal political economy and uh, and um, and for academia in, in general. In fact, I believe I had the opportunity to meet her just a few months before she died. She gave a talk at the Institute of Economic Affairs um, on her work, uh, focusing actually a great deal on her workshop method. She always used to joke, actually perhaps she wasn't joking, uh, but she always used to say that she wasn't sure if she actually could hack it as a political scientist. So she also learned some crafting. She kind of did some wood furniture crafting, you know, and she went out to Bloomington, which I'm not sure was if it was on the map at the time when she went out there. It certainly is on the map now, Bloomington in, in, in Indiana. She, um, yeah, and, and basically uh, she kind of developed a, a kind of way of working with graduate students and people across the world, which she called the workshop, I suppose, which is, I suppose, in contrast to a seminar or a kind of conference framework, where basically work was kind of co-produced. And it's interesting that, of course, a lot of her research is looking at kind of scenarios like that. And there she is um, actually kind of like building it into, into her own work. So if you kind of look at her CV or look at her Google Scholar page, so, you know, Eleanor Ostrom, just take a look, you'll see 
enormous stuff that she's written personally, but also an enormous number of varied collaborations. And, um, you know, I think the testament to it is really that she's a political scientist. She was told she couldn't quite manage it as an economist. And eventually she, she won the Nobel Prize in economics. Sadly, there is no Nobel Prize in political science. Well, perhaps that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, that kind of shows the kind of extent of her interdisciplinarity. Uh, that's a nice summation. And we should get into what sorts of problems was she trying to solve with her uh, intellectual legacy while she was alive? And maybe the best way to do so is to start with the tragedy of the commons, which depending on how you're approaching environmental and climate issues is either uh, a thought experiment that you hate, that you're sick of talking about, uh, or that you think it's just much more complicated than it's typically presented. So let's tell the simple story of what exactly the tragedy of the commons is, and then we'll get into how Eleanor Ostrom complicated it, but also made it legible in a very useful way as well. Yeah, no, that's that's right. So, you know, under the sort of classic tragedy of the common scenario, you kind of imagine that you've got a, uh, a pasture that's kind of used by uh, say a lot of shepherds with their own flocks. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a kind of common area which everyone uh, can access. And basically without coercion, uh, without some rules to manage that area, you're going to end up um, overusing it. So you're going to end up, you know, turning your grassland into a plain and eventually into a desert. And then, you know, everyone's animals are, are going to starve and everyone's eventually going to be uh, put into a, in, in, into a great deal of poverty. And so the traditional answer to this is to say, well, you probably need to privatize that commons. You need to kind of uh, take some parcels of land and you're going to give that to these uh, uh, shepherds. I suppose they're going to become farmers instead of some sort because they're not going to be roaming anymore. And that's going to be your solution. They're going to shepherd. They're going to look after their own resources. And that way, that will be the way of maintaining it. And if for some reason privatization isn't going to work, well, you're going to have to have, you know, some big guy, the state or some proto-state is going to have to come along and keep an eye on what people are doing and basically license the ability of people who want to use the pasture. Basically, you've kind of got this, this dilemma. Well, or, you know, you've got like these two solutions that, that are kind of meant to work, privatization or state control. That's, that was the kind of setup that Ostrom uh, initially encountered. Okay, that's that's great, Nick. That's a nice way to start the conversation. And it also breaks neatly along left-right lines, too. You have people on the left typically prefer the government uh, to either set regulations or to control this asset. And then you have people on the right who tend to trust the market and private property to do this. So this sort of makes sense. And um, maybe just to refresh people in case we covered it a bit too quickly, but the problem is if this pasture is commons, I'm putting this in quotes because we're going to complicate this story here in just a second. It's unowned or it's in quote unquote commons. It just means that people can run their their cows or their goats or their sheep up into the commons and graze it. But if you leave any grass there, who's to say your neighbor's not just going to send their cows up and eat it the next day? So your incentive is to consume as fast as possible for yourself. And that is the tragedy of the commons when that happens. There's no clear property rights. So everyone who's using this resource, the incentive is to just go for it. Is that broadly the case. That's right. And having the correct enforcement mechanism, essentially mutual or peer enforcement in many cases, this uh, allowed them to preserve this common resource after all. Hence, the tragedy of the commons was not quite so tragic after all. It was more of a drama. Yeah. How many times have you said that line? Actually, it's the first time I've said it. Um, I've read it quite a bit. <laughs> That's a good, you should write that down. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> 
That's good. So I associate, I think maybe the first thing I read by Eleanor Ostrom, I think it's her, her Nobel acceptance speech was where I started and it was beyond markets and states. And it was this interesting idea about the details matter, which sounds kind of banal when you think about it. Of course, the details matter more than like it isn't you can't just say property rights. Or you can't just say, you know, state ownership or uh, or regulation. And that's the end of the conversation. Clearly, there are good versions and bad versions of both. And there are places where these should apply and places where they should not. And she was very interested in looking at actual empirical examples where people have solved their own problems uh, collectively. And these are often in relatively smaller environments where people tend to know each other. They can enforce norms against each other and, and punish each other in ways that are maybe less formal. Is this characterization, you know, hitting the mark or am this I, am is, I this misreading her? Very, very much so. I mean, it, it's interesting because, of course, the fact that something is communal and kind of involves a close-knit community doesn't necessarily mean that it's informal. It might involve quite a lot of formal uh, rules. Mm. Uh, so that's like another dimension to kind of uh, look at. And, um, you know, formal rules have their kind of costs as well, but often they're necessary, even in a small group, just so that everyone knows, you know, where where they stand. So, yeah, it, once again, it's another detail to kind of add to, um, uh, to, to uh, Ostrom's discovery. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. That is one of the things that is um, most useful about her methodological lenses that she uses, but also one of the things that makes it quite difficult to apply, given that it is so place-based and unique and bespoke in all of the times when it, it exists. Uh, maybe we should give people an example here. Do you have a good example of uh, an Ostromian institution that you can just pull out of your hat and display? I must say, uh, it, that's, a, that's a little bit of a challenge because um, I, I know that she tends to look at uh, fisheries uh, a great deal. And I think one of the the, the most successful um, cases of commons that she looks at is in a series of lakes in, in Turkey. Uh, so very, very long-lived commons institutions where basically um, they you know, in a sense, quite informal because, you know, you kind of got these these uh, fishermen kind of living in some cases quite far apart, but they kind of have a rule on uh, when they're allowed to fish. And importantly, the individual who's allowed to fish on a in a particular time period, they are also in charge of enforcing the rule, which is kind of like it means it's a sort of self-enforcing kind of element to it. So it's sort of saying, well, for the sake of this this time right now, this is kind of your property, but you have to look after it. Um, so I think that's the kind of uh, examples that she came up with um, over over the years. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the examples I've heard from uh, James C. Scott, who, as we like to say on the podcast, we're coming for you, James C. Scott, because <laughs> your work has made a big influence on me. And uh, I think it's very interesting. He'll talk about how private property, as we conceive of it, is pretty simple. But property rights prior to uh, private property as we currently understand it is oftentimes quite rotational and confusing and opaque to outsiders. So you'll have examples like peasants will say, okay, your family owns this pasture uh, this season, but the next pasture switches and then um, you'll pick up this other one and then we'll keep trading in this sort of like complex weave of property rights and who gets to do what and when. Uh, it isn't something that's just formalized that you can go to a court and look up who owns this piece of land fee simple. It's actually something much more confusing than that, but it works, right? So the pe for the people who live there, it is very functional, but for outsiders, it is not something easily able to interact with. Yeah, that's that's right. And and I think, you know, as, as sort of James Scott kind of illustrates, a lot of the times when we've officially formalized or codified 
property rights. It's not the fact that they weren't particularly formal before. It's just that they were opaque to the state. And states don't like things that are opaque. The state doesn't mind being opaque to the people, but it doesn't like the people to be <laughs> opaque to it because it probably wants to tax them. Find out how many resources, maybe if anyone is eligible for military conscription. That's the sort of thing states tend to worry about. And so it's very important that your property rights are kind of transparent to the state for when it's attempting to achieve its ends. So naturally, if we're looking at this from a kind of more critical standpoint, we're not just thinking about what's in the state's interest. We're thinking, for example, about what's in the ecological interest, what's in the genuine public interest. Then we'd often say, well, those property rights, confusing, opaque, awkward to manage as they were, probably solved a lot of problems for the inhabitants who were there. And they maybe made a decision not to formalize them, not to make them as transparent initially. We shouldn't necessarily judge them for that. And perhaps we should try and kind of revive a a kind of broader notion of property rights, one that kind of includes these kind of complex communal arrangements. Nick, what do you think is the appropriate place to apply all of these paradigms? On the one hand, you have uh, the sort of like free market private property solution where you have the, the pastures and you say, this family owns this plot of the pastures, this other family owns this, they can do what they want with it, they can sell it, they can use it, etc. And the hope there is that because you own it year after year, you want to see that a resource increase in value. So you're not going to just eat everything and your cows aren't, you're going to want to foster it. And the other approach is, is regulation and uh, or government control in some variety and when might that be appropriate too because there are some things that are good about it and there are other things that are bad about it same as private property rights what is the ostromian approach or the, the polycentric governance approach here how do you is this because this is sort of like emergent is it something that we can actually even apply like those other two examples uh, of paradigms because it might just be something that uh, like grows out of a certain community you can't just drop Ostrom on a place and expect it to happen, or can you? Absolutely not. Well, it, it, it depends. You know, some people, you know, saw all these, you know, long-lived commons institutions that Ostrom, you know, kind of observed and kind of made, you know, a little bit more transparent to the scholars and to the policymakers. And some of them kind of attempted to go like, oh wow, commons are great. They're not state. They're not private. They're not like state socialism, and they're not like capitalism either. Let's go for this kind of third way. And that is not really the lesson that Ostrom was really pushing, uh, at least in, at least in, in, in my reading. Um, so it's exactly what you're saying. The main lesson is you can't apply a set of mechanisms or a set of principles at all times and in all places. Rather, you've got to see what has been working and try and like work out if something is not working, what exactly is stopping the people there from fixing it. And, you know, I think the, the, um, reason is often that the full set of people's governance arrangements um, including individual rights uh, and possibly market principles, but also the communal arrangements that are there, they might not be being recognised. They might not be being respected appropriately. And that's preventing people from making a sufficient long-term planning. Because, you know, there's not that many people out there who actively want to destroy the environment. Many just think, well, I need to live. I need to, I need to you know, look after my own well-being and no one else is looking after it. Therefore, I've just got to, you know, I've just got to get mine while I can. Very few people want to be in that position, but if the rules are failing, they will end up 
So I think I think that's the kind of the first part. If I wanted to give an example of where I think regulation appears to have done very successfully, I think it would be the kind of regulation to uh, save the ozone. So uh, you know the kind of um, uh, gases that were kind of uh, be- being given off in the 1980s that we were using, you know, in our in our fridges and uh, and, and whatnot. It's very hard for me to imagine either a market solution to that or a kind of common solution. It's a kind of global public good problem, the ozone layer. So, you know, saving it, that may well have been a case where, you know, much as, you know, I'm, I'm usually a little skeptical of kind of regulation. That's the kind of case where you'd need it. Another example, I think, you know, might be with carbon emissions. It strikes me, this is not the same as like banning, uh, you know, CFC um, emissions, but I, it strikes me that a carbon tax might well be necessary to kind of get stuff off the ground, you know, either a global carbon tax or at least a carbon tax that an enormous amount of the world has kind of opted into. And that's because basically you're dealing with a kind of global commons at that kind of level with, with the atmosphere itself. That's where I think you might need some state involvement. That's not to say the state is the only actor that's going to be in operation. Once you've got a carbon tax, hopefully you can kind of unleash the kind of innovation that will lead to people being able to pay that carbon tax or be able to kind of reduce the amount of carbon that they're emitting on net uh, in the most efficient way possible. And that's where both private property market solutions and common solutions might come back in. That was beautiful. That was a very nice way to conceptualize it. I like that. I try not to be too ideological about any of this stuff. I think it's important to, God, I know this is banal, but the details matter, right? Like we we really want to make sure that we're applying the right paradigm in the right place because, man, there are people I know on every side of this that have that uh, everything looks like a nail when all you have is a hammer mentality. So I definitely know some free market libertarian types and it's just like privatize everything is a solution. You're like, there are cases where this is this is worse than the alternative. And there are definitely people I know who would, would favor regulation before they even know what the regulation entails. They're like attracted to that idea. And you're like, okay, there are cases where the dynamism of markets and decentralization can be very powerful. And then also... With people I know on the the commons front, they're very fond of talking about systems thinking and complexity, but I have often found that those conversations become very muddled. There's not a bright line that I can pull out. It's just sort of like, well, you have to look at everything holistically. And it's like, okay, but uh, I'm not even sure what you're saying then, because it's it's <laughs> how do you look at everything holistically and interact in a complex system? Uh, it just becomes a, a dog's breakfast, as uh, your countrymen might say. Yeah, yes. Is that your experience too? Uh, yeah, but that's that's what my first drafts always look like. Far too many factors, far too many variables, far too many things that are kind of like moving in a system. And then what you kind of got to do is identify what's kind of going on that we can kind of say, yeah, that makes a big difference. And that's kind of like robust to the other things that are kind of going on in, in, in the model. So, uh, you know, an important thing in these cases is perhaps the notion of residual claimancy. So it's this this old um, you know sort of common law notion that um, you know there's a there's a kind of um, a landlord or someone who has a kind of uh, strong fundamental claim on a piece of land or territory or piece of property such that you know if it's uh, destroyed or disposed of in some way they're the ones who kind of bear the cost they don't get uh, discounted for it. On the other hand, if there's kind of some excess profit associated with it, they also receive the benefit, and that kind of makes people a little bit more observant about what's going on. And I think an important observation 
that um, you know Ostrom, you know, especially on the kind of more classical liberal side of the of of, of kind of Ostrom, you know, she has many dimensions, but there's on, on that side is to say that it's not just individuals or kind of corporations that have that kind of potential. Various other communities and various other kind of governance arrangements can necessarily benefit from a residual claimancy. It's a great $5 word or $5 concept right there. Residual claimancy. Try to shoehorn that into your daily discussion, <laughs> listener. Get that out there. Okay. We're here to talk about your paper though. So I think we did a really nice job. Thank you for doing so of explaining the basics here. And let's dive into a topic that you clearly know a lot about, which is British flood management and how these paradigms have been applied to varying degrees of success or failure. Well, yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. I'm um, I suppose I'm an expert on flood management in the sense that I've been living in Britain for a long time, and you know, about <laughs> twice a year we get a lot of flooding, and then we also get a lot of complaints about flooding. The public uh, sector is not doing enough. Whole villages or towns have kind of been flooded. And, you know, they're always saying, well, the government should have done more. They should, you know, make sure that uh, everyone gets subsidized insurance. They should make sure that um, uh, the rivers are appropriately dredged so that water can flow more quickly. Um, and there's always a big debate about this. Basically, the government says, well, it's got increasingly expensive. Uh, to kind of like have all this flood management uh, in place that we're paying for, that we sort of, you know, the, the, eventually the taxpayers are paying for. And that's because, well, one reason is because of climate change. Um, so, you know, we're getting uh, more storms, we're getting more floods, um, we're getting more unpredictable water turning up in kind of uh, weird places. But the other side is that the government has become a little bit more environmentally conscious over the years. Um, and basically, it now realizes that these kind of uh, wetland territories that um, the government itself was aggressively draining in the immediate post-war era, like you know, who wants wetlands? Who wants marshlands? It's just like you can't grow anything on there. It's not economically productive. Suddenly, uh, you know, we've got a new kind of social ethos that now realizes that actually a lot of this stuff, which is kind of like floodplain territory, has some very unique environmental features. And so the government's in a bit of a bind here because people are kind of living and working on this, this territory. You know, they expect the government to protect them, to make sure that they're not going to be flooded out. But on the other hand, public policy is now saying, well, actually, not all of this territory really should be, you know, quite so heavily used. In fact, it should be set aside, you know, for this kind of unique wildlife that um, that used to be there and could be there again. So I found that kind of fascinating because it seemed like the government really was in a total bind. And it kind of got itself into this this system, into this kind of, um, into this business of handling flood from a kind of national planning perspective. And then suddenly it found it couldn't really afford it. And it found that everyone's pissed off with them at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. So that's kind of what got me, got me interested in this particular topic. I love that. That's such a great case. I associate this too. Here's another sort of libertarian classic that I think has something important to say, which is um, Ludwig von Mises's insights on intervention, where you have something that wouldn't have happened without the government's involvement. And then that changed the, the course of behavior in a reaction to that. So people should not have lived in these floodplains. The government made it possible and sort of encouraged it. And once people are there, you require increasingly more interventions to sustain the system that really should never should have existed in the first place, but becomes politically impossible to change. Is this a correct application of that idea? Th that's right. And, and in a sense, I would go further. I mean, it's very hard to piece together who's benefiting 
um, and who's losing from these kind of these series of interventions. But I think it looks rather like what Gordon Tullock calls a transitional gains trap. And that's where you kind of introduce a policy which has some very immediate beneficiaries. In this case, it would be the people who are paid to engage in some river management, paid to drain uh, various territories. And then as soon as that's happened, as soon as that benefit has been accrued, everything else is costs. Because everyone is in a kind of funny state because people have moved in. They've moved into an area which they thought was going to be flood protected. The government suddenly has to keep paying to keep that going, doesn't want to do it anymore. The people, if they'd known about that they would be suffer from flooding, wouldn't have wanted to move in there in the first place. The various processes that went on encouraged them to move in there. Everyone would like to be in a, in a different position. And yet there's no way of kind of actually making people better off without, I don't know, bailing everyone out, uh, which is like one way out of a transitional gains trap. And that means basically you, then you share the burden on the on the whole tax base so it's a it's a nasty position that we've got ourselves into oh yeah i don't even know how you the, the justice questions that come up in that are so complicated what a what a shame that all is okay so what has happened with these ver- like the way your paper is partitioned too you talk about attempts to either privatize and use private property to address this or various types of regulation and also maybe a possible uh, Ostromian way forward. Can you lay those out for us? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, in, in a sense, the situation that we're in now is a kind of result, not just of public regulation. In fact, uh, unfortunately, it's someone who occasionally I've agreed with, you know, Margaret Thatcher and her administration, who kind of came came on and said, like, no, the government shouldn't be getting involved in all these things. The private sector, that solves everything. So this is like the other side of that binary. And what uh, she and her subsequent, you know, administrations did was basically privatise a lot of water provision and water management uh, in the United Kingdom and kind of put them in charge of doing a great deal of kind of, 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 of flood management. And so, you know, basically required people to kind of pay fees to kind of um, uh, to these, these private companies. For the kind of remaining, I suppose, pure public good elements, we ended up with a very highly centralized national agency called the Environment Agency, which is basically in charge of kind of, I suppose, more proactive flood management. Local communities under the regime, you know, up until very recently, uh, haven't really had that much involvement. And I think what was interesting about this is if you look back in the, um, you know, in, in the history, when you realize how drainage and flood management was managed, we don't actually know that much about it, precisely because of this kind of, uh, you know, Scott's insight that, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, if your system is quite opaque and quite local and quite particularistic or quite peculiar, then it's very hard to kind of figure it out how it fits into the rest of the system. But evidently, it was quite functional. That was standardized. When the government introduced in the, you know, the early 20th century internal drainage boards, which appear to have been basically controlled by local landowners and farmers, they kind of had some of the properties of local cooperatives and they kind of levied fees on each other locally. And that was kind of how they managed floods uh, for a while. And it was only really when the government noticed that a lot of territory was just being allowed to be flooded, because at the time, a lot of the land wasn't really worth farming or it wasn't worth developing in a particular way, that the government said, like, okay, no, we don't, we don't want these people handling this, this stuff anymore. They're clearly being lazy. And that's when they started (laughs) subsidizing and pushing for a kind of, um, I suppose, more land reclamation. And one thing that we observe in the paper is that Although the idea was to try and encourage 
farmers or rather more farmers to use more land and kind of turn it into uh, basically increase agricultural uh, production. Um, generally, it wasn't used that way unless very specifically incentivized. Uh, and that's because, you know, labor costs um, are relatively high in the UK. And uh, a lot of food production is not particularly, it's not to our comparative advantage to kind of be producing that much food. So it's kind of like a kind of mix of kind of um, public intervention at first, and then this kind of austerity pulling back of the state that kind of led to the, the, the mess that we're in now. And the reason why that happened is because, you know, we were operating on this binary that basically said that all social problems either have to be solved by the market, and if the market isn't running, running it well, then the state has got to get its heavy hands in and solve it. Whereas if they'd looked a little bit more carefully at what the farmers themselves were up to, they would have seen some quite, you know, sophisticated ways of engaging in flood management. If you don't mind me teleporting to today a little bit. So everyone loves trees. And I know that you guys kind of uh, think about trees as well. because It's part of, uh, you know, kind of potentially carbon sequestration. I know I know it's not as efficient as it, as it ought to be, but it's uh, everyone likes it. And actually... Um, we want more, uh, especially in these kind of floodplain areas, uh, because they, they do, they do wonders if you can kind of put them in the right place along riverbanks, because they kind of strengthen the soil, which means that, uh, you know, the, the, the rivers can kind of keep their shape and can kind of continue the flow of water in, in some ways. Now, everyone kind of wants this. So everyone from an ecological perspective thinks it's great. The trouble is getting people to actually implement it because of course it's not something that you can just like plonk down whether it's like a market paying for trees or the state kind of saying oh this is how it should be done it requires local knowledge of the way these rivers are constructed where the kind of weak points are and also where people can best set aside land to kind of plant these uh, these these trees the other problem with it is of course water doesn't stick to property lines so it's not like landowners themselves can do it entirely on their own bat on their own land because if they do it alone well, they'll receive some benefit, but not most of it. Most of it will go to the local community. And also, you probably need quite a lot of it spread over a given territory in order to make a sufficient difference. So basically, our argument is that we would expect, uh, you know, once the state has taken a step back to see communal arrangements emerge, which is going to kind of make, you know, more use of these kind of sophisticated, you know, kind of lighter touch approaches to flood management. That's, that's our hope anyway. That makes sense to me. One of the more prominent critiques of subsidiarity, which is a fancy word for saying things should be taken care of at the like most local level possible, the smallest scale possible, is that people worry that the, one of the good things about having the government or the state do something is that there's a guarantee that's publicly stated that they have an obligation to do things. And even if it's too standardized across the diverse populations and geographies, it's at least like the baseline, and that's clearly stated. But people worry that if you just removed that, who's to say that some of these more communal arrangements would actually spring up and we might just be left worse off without having anything replace the, the government at all? Yeah, I mean, and that takes us back to the transitional gains trap problem, which is sort of like, well, what if it turns out that it doesn't matter how many trees or how much dredging, how much kind of sluice gates you install, it's still going to be prohibitively expensive to prevent some land from being flooded and people are living there. That's going to be, that's very, very awkward. Um, that's the kind of moment where you might think that some sort of state buyout arrangement might be necessary just to try and fix the problems that people are there, um, people there r r right now. So in other words, you wouldn't want to start from where you are. But actually, 
in principle, we probably have, you know, kind of overmanaged floods. We've, we've, we've engaged in too much prevention in the UK over the years. You know, environmentalists would say that, you know, there was, you know, decent habitats that wasn't particularly agriculturally productive, but was productive in other ways and ecologically important that we should have saved. And now we should be recovering. And that means that if, you know, and, and if communal arrangements, if there's no arrangement, where some residual claimants can work out how to make some land productive, then it should not be productive. It should be part of the ecosystem. It should be returned to nature in, in, in some way. Another possibility is, of course, you know, um, sometimes environmentalists have, you know, quite deep pockets and they're very committed to their ideas and they see the value in, you know, natural habitats and in kind of keeping some resources in the ground or keeping uh, some territories open for kind of nature to develop or for kind of careful cultivation, but not for industrial use. And, um, obviously, giving them the right to acquire property rights, you know, consensually. So in other words, buying people out, that is also a kind of a, another uh, potential solution that I think that the kind of more light touch approach can allow. Uh, because right now, you know, we kind of uh, heavily subsidize um, farming and agriculture. This is something that was present before we entered the European Union. It was a big problem when we were in the European Union and now we're leaving, we're going to have to revisit that. But basically, we've encouraged farming on a kind of scale that's much larger than, than we've really needed in this country. And as a result, you know, the kind of, um, both the price signals in terms of like what's productive, they've been attenuated, but also we've kind of like, we've tread too strongly, um, on the environment while doing that. So, um, you know, part of the point of this solution is actually that there isn't always a solution. Sometimes we should just retreat <laughs> and, uh, you know, we should let, we should let the water come in. <laughs> Wow, I'm I'm tickled by all of that. Uh, <laughs> you got away with words, Nick. I enjoy just listening to you explain economics to me. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, no, it's. Uh, I must say at, at this point that uh, my PhD is in politics, not not economics. So uh, yeah, no, you have to get Brian Kaplan back on to make sure that I've got it right. Uh, actually, having said that, I'll say another point of inspiration for this paper is um, uh, uh, two uh, great scholars. Um, one a lawyer, uh, one an economist. Um, so there's a professor, Karen Bradshaw, and also a professor, Brian Leonard. I think they're both based in Arizona. So I'm sure you've come across them, actually, even if you, maybe you've had them on the podcast already. But if not, you should definitely get them on the list uh, because uh, they have some very interesting um, uh, discussions in this area. Great. Yeah, I'll look into that. Arizona, I mean, at ASU, they had uh, Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom. Her husband was a political scientist as well. There's some sort of center there, but it was prior to my understanding really what they were up to when I was an undergrad there. I guess one of the final questions to, to leave our audience with here too, hopefully this is what their appetite for more discussions of this ilk, is this crossover seemed really powerful to me. I can see like some of the people that I know who most like this third way beyond markets and states, a lot of them are sort of uh, regenerative finance, regenerative economics, permaculture. They're people who are thinking about ways of either reforming or replacing capitalism with something that is also dynamic, uh, but it tends to have more of like a left-wing flavor to it. And then some of the people I know who really like her work too, and others from the Bloomington School, she you know, was at Bloomington, Indiana, so it's often called the Bloomington School uh, way of thinking. A lot of people I know who like her are often people who very much admire people like F.A. Hayek and other sort of classical liberal free market thinkers who say this is 
actually really appealing to me as well. Uh, how much interaction do you see between these two camps within discussions about Ostrom's legacy? Or am, am I just imagining this or are they even in touch with each other? Because I, I don't really see that much of it. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's that much intellectual in in interaction going on at the moment. I think it might just be the nature of, you know, there's geographical splits and there's also disciplinary splits that are kind of um, going on. I mean, I think, you know, in answer to this idea that you can replace capitalism, I mean, capitalism is a very controversial word. I, I prefer to talk about commercial society and markets, although capital does come into my my system. I don't see why it should have to be at the center of the system. But what I'd say is is that I think there's some increasing body of evidence that suggests that you actually get more sophisticated communal commons arrangements when the products they're producing are appropriately commodified, or indeed where there's kind of deeper markets in in place. It's kind of like where I... um see some of the work that, you know, you're doing at, at Norrie kind of uh, working that, you know, if, for example, you can supply a carbon market, you know, if you become a carbon market maker and you actually make it work and it's it's like uh, not as complicated as it is to kind of get certification as it is right now, then what would happen is some people would suddenly realize, you know, like me acquiring my microphone to do this podcast for slightly different reasons, but, you know, I've got it. Farmers, landowners, other people with who, who can potentially make use of their resources to engage in carbon uh, sequestration or, or other ways of mitigating uh, climate change, they would realize that it actually makes sense at this point for them to form uh, governance arrangements, to perhaps establish a company or a not-for-profit firm or some kind of more complex, even more opaque communal system, depending on the regime that they're in. And the market would actually encourage them to do it. So I think in many cases, markets that respect private property and also respect communal property, in other words, not kind of the, the sort of markets that are used to kind of, you know, go and take people's property, the ones that actually respect existing laws and existing norms, they can actually prompt innovation at a kind of local level. And I think, you know, if there's one other thing that I'd say about the way that I think people coming at this from a more environmental perspective would, would say is, I think there's a big dispute over the nature of growth, um, you know, what economic growth is. Because what I find that, um, I suppose, ecologists tend to assume is that more growth necessarily means more resource use rather than more efficient resource um, use. And I think it kind of goes back to this idea of like where GDP comes from. And the answer is that kind of GDP is kind of first invented when, you know, we have a series of economic crises where people are kind of thrown out of work, there's mass unemployment, incomes are kind of dropping, and we're kind of looking for some tool to find out or some measure to find out if various government interventions are working to kind of fix things back into some kind of equilibrium. And that's really great. You know, no one likes unemployment, mass unemployment's worse, we're facing that right now. You know, and so as a result, you know, GDP measures important. But that doesn't necessarily mean growth in the kind of broader sense. In the broader sense, we mean basically people being able to live good lives with access to the goods and services that they need. Now, if you kind of think of it that way, then you kind of realize that, you know, there might well be trade-offs. In fact, there's bound to be trade-offs at various points in terms of resource use. But it's not quite the same impression that kind of the GDP has, which is like always increasing incomes through more in more exploitation of, of, of resources. So I think properly construed, a kind of market approach 
to living well would say that actually you've got to include the costs, include kind of increasingly scarce resources in your in, in your measures. And in fact, under the right circumstances, a kind of commercial order is capable of a kind of shepherding common resources effectively and actually saving more of them for, for future generations. You know, you have to set the institutional framework correctly, but they're not quite at loggerheads in the way that I, I think some uh, kind of e- ecologists think about it when they think about um, capitalism. I mean, th- there is... Um, Actually, one other person who I could, you know, name drop at this at this point, who we've actually used in the kind of redrafting of of the paper, and that's um, Ilya Mutasashvili at the University of Pittsburgh. He's he's an associate professor there, and he's got some very interesting work on the role of individualism broadly construed. It's not just you know sheer economic individualism; it's like social individualism and the ability to uh, shepherd common resources. And he kind of uses, um, I think, you know, measures of forestry and increased reforestation in commercial orders to illustrate how individualist societies are actually very capable of looking after common resources, precisely because people can be in the appropriate framework can be made to take responsibility for their actions in a way that can be harder in kind of more collectivist um, societies. You just complicate everything, (laughs) don't you, Nick? Uh, That's right. I try and keep it simple. But uh, yeah, (laughs) it's uh, these things, these things do get complicated. No, I mean, that's part of the fun too. And I always wonder, surely there are some of these solutions that appeal to everyone, but I wonder to what degree, ah, there's too much crossover. It's just part of politics is expressing difference. And we like arguing and dividing ourselves into teams and yelling about it. But I, I see a lot to like about it. I can read books from some of the more like right-leaning or market-friendly people I know who like uh, Eleanor Ostrom's work and also stuff like Kate Rayworth uh, and Donut Economics and say like there's great ideas and that are super creative in both of these. Um, I wish we could get together and talk more on on this level rather than just screaming about markets versus states, which it seems like like 95, 6, 7% of the conversation is still on that level anyways, right? <laughs> Why can't we get beyond it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's okay, because this is kind of, you know, as, as much as I dislike it, especially when I'm getting this in my kind of peer review uh, responses, when I'm when I'm getting these, uh, when I'm getting my various papers out, I mean, it is also how progress happens, you know, like uh, people being angry, people thinking that some point is completely disastrous, completely, you know, complete misconception, and arguing about it in the literature, that's the way that these ideas get, get tested. Um, in fact, you can kind of see that happening in real time. Time right now in epidemiology, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out from a very, very uncertain, kind of very, very ignorant standpoint. It's a brand new, you know, virus, this coronavirus that we're handling, and um, you know, people don't like the debate, you know, often because they think, oh, we should just like rally behind, you know, the official message. And I think official messages are necessary. This is a classic kind of public good problem we're kind of dealing with. But at the same time, it's very important that science carries on, and the science is, it's not neat. It's very messy. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of disagreement. It sometimes gets personal as well. But you've got to allow it because it's the only way that these things can kind of um, can proceed. So, um, yeah, uh, and some people enjoy it. Some people don't like it. But uh, it's, it's, it's how progress happens. And so, um, you know, hopefully if we provoke some debate, you know, we, we can carry on this conversation here or another forum and, um, you know, kind of uh, and, and see what I've got wrong and see, uh, you know, see what I can refine to kind of make my make my arguments better. Well, if someone wanted to follow up with your work to learn more about this, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. There's a lot here uh, and it's very interesting. I I like reading people, all of the traditions I named, I think there's something of value to learn from and to dig into. So where might someone even do this beyond this podcast? I think you could just start at ncowen, N-C-O-W-E-N dot net. That's got a link 
several links to my various accounts with academia.edu and SSRN if people are interested in looking at my work. I'd be delighted if people wanted to follow me on Twitter, which I'm on too often for the kind of work that I do. And, uh, you know, that's another way of kind of carrying on the discussion in, in a more in, in informal setting. So, uh, yeah, ncowan.net would be, you know, there's a few things there, but more importantly, there's links to where all the where all the papers are. Great. Thank you. There's we should just have you back on too. There's a whole another thing we could do about blockchain and also Eleanor Ostrom. I bet there's a bunch more we could talk about. So maybe we'll have to do that in the future. Oh yeah. Ostrom and blockchain, there's a lot of potential overlap. Yeah. So yeah, be delighted to explore that with you, Ross. And uh, you know, good good luck with your with your work. And you as well. Well, thanks for being here, Nick. And thank you for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher. Tell your friends. I hope you found this interesting. I hope we were able to sufficiently cover it. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.